As soon as I had stopped, there was a door opened in the side of this vehicle, and this man stepped out and came directly to me, or came to the truck. He walked to the right-hand side of the truck, and he told me to roll down the window. He asked me to roll down the window on my right-hand side of my truck, and I had done what he asked. And this man stood there, and he, uh, he first asked me, what I was called, and I knew he meant my name, and I told him my name. And uh, he asked me, he said, uh, why are you frightened? He said, don't be frightened, we wish you no harm. He said, we mean you no harm, we wish you only happiness. And uh, I told him my name, and when I told him my name, he said he was called Cold. society something you are listening to serial spirits the podcast Guys, welcome to this special episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. It is me, your host, Brendan Shea, and with me, as always, is the beautiful, the lovely. Annie Weebs, how's it going, Shea Day? Are you excited for tonight? I'm excited for tonight. I told everybody that we only had two more things we were releasing this year, and that was the snippet that that we just released, and then uh, a Christmas episode, but I was able to secure a... Final interview for the year, and I'm kind of excited about it because, as you know, we have dug deep into the world of Mothman and all that crazy phenomenon. And tonight we're going to have Connor Randall, one of the producers, investigators, and the team of the series Hellier. And they just released their second season, uh, what, last week? Was it last week? Black Friday. They Black Friday. Hellier 2, and it is absolutely freaking phenomenal and i'm so excited to talk to connor because if you haven't watched episode or season one of hellier you got to do that first there's my disclaimer is that you have to do that to get the history behind hellier and then dig deep into the second season because it travels down a serious wormhole of weirdness and we're going to get into all of that with connor tonight because he plays a huge part in season two And let me tell you, this guy, you know, if you follow anything that he's done in his career, he's had a pretty interesting paranormal career, and he 
is a freaking genius in my book and he's the reason you know i really wanted to talk to him and pick his brain about some things so what follows is going to be our interview with connor randall from the hell year series right here on serial spirits the podcast cast cast <laughs> anyway here's our interview with connor all right, guys. So on tonight's episode of Serial Spirits, we are so incredibly excited and honored to welcome from the documentary that is taking the paranormal world by storm. You guys, please help us welcome Hellier's Connor Randall. Connor, thank you so much for being part of Serial Spirits tonight. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to to chat about all of this strangeness. Let's oh let's do it. Gosh. All of the high strangeness. There, there are so many things that we want to discuss with you. But our first disclaimer is that if anyone listening has not already watched Hell Your Season 1. Then what is the matter with you? Right. Number one, <laughs> what's the matter with you? Where you been? But number two, go back and do that before you launch into Season 2. Because there's just so much detail there that, that you've got to get the history underneath your belt before you dive into season two. So Connor, before we go into the series, give us a little rundown about how you got involved with the paranormal and how Hellier's project kind of fell into your lap. You know, it's kind of a funny, I like many people who I'm sure are your listeners are, are, are was I've been interested in the paranormal esoterica, high strangeness, and, and just strange stories since my early teenage years. I am located out in Colorado. I'm lucky to be about an hour away from the famous Stanley Hotel. So I loved ghost stories so much based off of some experiences when I was younger that I was like, well, shoot, I want to, I want to be around this. And so I got a job when I was 17 as the concierge slash a history tour guide at the Stanley Hotel up in up in Estes Park, the Shining Hotel. Nice. Um, it's more well known as. And so I, I had that job for about five years, and then I eventually became sort of their resident paranormal dude, um, along with Carl and and my friend Michelle. And and so we we basically spent four years at that job. In the meantime, I joined up with. I was a big fan, of course, of the show Ghost Hunters, and so I I joined up with the Colorado Taps team. So. Any weekend that I wasn't at the Stanley, I was out with those guys in other places looking for ghosts. And and then it got to a point where Carl and I, um, he was starting to get more interested in photography and video work. And we kind of thought, well, shoot, we have fairly interesting jobs. Why don't we start to document some of that? And so we essentially created this series that was called The Spirits of the Stanley, which was about the ghost stories of the Stanley Hotel and our experiences, uh, which is on YouTube still, if anybody wants to check it out. And that sort of became sort of the preamble to Hellier. That's where we kind of cut our teeth, learn how to do documentary work. And then uh, the Stanley kind of nixed uh, and cut off a lot of their paranormal stuff. You know, they were like, we're, we're not really, the owner's not really interested in continuing to do ghost work necessarily and so we were like well shoot that that's too bad but uh we had met so many friends at different conferences and things at that point that we were looking for something else to document carl's ear uh was caught by greg newkirk telling this very strange story about goblins and creatures in rural kentucky and so we hit up greg uh 
and said, hey, man, can we come out and make a short about your case revolving around the Kentucky Goblins? And uh, then it it just we, – we went into it thinking it was going to be an hour, hour and a half long. And then it turned into an entire series that now spans 13, 14 hours of content. And uh, people are really digging the case. So, yeah. Yeah, it's good. I can say uh, I've watched a couple of the uh, Spirits of the Stanley. And from day one, I mean, I think it's it, just besides the content of it, it's a very well shot like series well thank you i mean and that's one of the things that always catches my eye too when i watch a lot of these documentaries is that how well shot they are and hellier is mean it's extremely well well done the production wise everything but i mean yeah you guys you know that's what i told annie before like we 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 watched we when we finished the second hellier we were like i kept telling i was like when you see people who actually have done the work they do the research and they've investigated so much. So, like, all right, now we're going to put this on camera, and we want everyone else to see. You know, I think it means more to people watching it because, especially investigators, they've seen or they've investigated, and they know the steps that it takes to to do all that work. And then when you actually let somebody else be the eyes, you know what I mean? Like that camera is now their eye being part of yeah. the investigation with you. Like it's yeah, it's a very well shot show. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, and and ninety percent of that is Carl's eye. He's taught me some tricks, but his his camera work is just phenomenal. We're lucky to have him. I do I do the audio recording, um, but he's really the mastermind behind that that part of it. Yeah, big up to Carl Pfeiffer because he does have a beautiful eye. So let's go back to like I said, season one. Tell everyone if they don't know what this is about. What is Hellier? Is it a place? Is it a person? Is it what is the premise behind the Hellier series? Yeah, so Hellier is a town um, in rural Kentucky, about 45 minutes away from Pikeville, Kentucky. Um, it's the next largest near town, nearest large town, I should say. So it's, I mean, it's it's a very tiny community. Uh, I want to say maybe 700 residents. I mean, it's it's out in the middle of coal country, in the middle of the hills of Appalachia. Essentially, Greg received, starting in 2012, a series of emails from a man named David who said that he lived outside, just outside of Hellier, Kentucky, and said that he was he and his family were being terrorized by these creatures who were breaking into their shed, who were tapping on the windows. These little beings who were three and a half, four feet tall, um, had three toes and were just very mischievous. Um, they said they took his dog. They said they were vandalizing his property. They said He said nobody would believe him. Greg had continuing contact with this guy for a number of months. And then when Greg finally made plans to go out and actually go in person and see this guy, he just completely disappeared. And so it sort of became this this mystery um, where, in, in a way, it's sort of this paranormal catfish, you know, where it's like, well, who sent all of these pictures? Who sent us the footprints? Who sent all this information? And where did he go? So it, it became a search for the real guy, David, and it became a search for, for the creatures themselves. And it's interesting because... Okay, I'm from Huntington, West Virginia, so I grew up, you know, 45 minutes from Point Pleasant, and there's so much history in this area. My family is actually from, 
Well, I've traced them back to Johnson County, Kentucky, which is near the Pikeville area. And you're talking about a very religious and superstitious people from that area. Yeah. Which I think plays a lot into the story behind Hellier. I had the chance to chat, uh, it's been a few months back now, with Geraldine Sutton Stith, who was one of the, um, her family actually kind of told this story that happened back in the 1950s that they called the Kelly Greenman or the Hopkinsville Goblins. And so you've heard these stories kind of replay out over the years and Mm -hmm. feel like as, you know, Hellier gained more popularity, people started talking about it even more, kind of like, you know, Mothman in the 60s, when all of that phenomena happened in Point Pleasant. And, you know, we'll get into later in this interview talking about some other places that Mothman appeared that you guys also visited. Uh, People are talking a little more about it now. And it's so funny because we had the chance to talk with you guys very briefly at the Mothman Festival this year. Yeah, yeah. And um, I remember my own grandfather, who was a coal miner and an avid hunter. So he spent, you know, thousands of hours in the woods, especially at night, talking about what he called, he called them haints, which basically meant ghosts, spirits, in you know in the woods and warned us about going out there by ourselves they're very superstitious and so it's it's so crazy to me to see all of this coming out in the public now these stories that we grew up hearing as kids that nobody ever really believed but now you're seeing them all surface and it, it's just it's crazy to me yeah no and that's fantastic so you and you also probably would agree with this potential assessment, one of the most difficult things about trying to log sightings in this case, and and we have, you know, we're, we're using all sorts of methods. We're looking on like local, like next door forums and topics forums and stuff like what, what are people talking about in this area? One of the most difficult things is that there's no agreed upon name, you know? So like you, you said, like, like your grandfather, he called right. them paints. Uh, people call them critters. They call them eyes in the trees. They call them uh, the hills have eyes, this right. little little men, goblins. It's, it's all over the place. It's not like Bigfoot where it's like, clearly, this is the thing. What, what is going on in this area? Uh, it's, it's a continuing sort of frustration, but, but also a fascination. Well, that's one of the credible things, too, about this area. People are reluctant to talk about these things. And that's what they said about, like, in Point Pleasant, Mothman. That's why John Keel was so, he he was believing these people because these are people who didn't believe in this kind of stuff, didn't want to hear about it, but they were the ones coming forward and saying, yeah, I saw something, I couldn't explain it. And that's mm-hmm. why, to me, a lot of this stuff was really credible because these people really didn't want to talk about that kind of stuff, but they seen something they couldn't explain or understand, and it was like, wow, something really must be going on. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it, it's, it adds to the credibility of the witness if they're a little bit reluctant at first, which makes our job a little bit difficult. I mean, we're sitting here with a couple of cameras, you know, talking to these people about some of the strangest things they've seen in their lives. Uh, it, it can take a while for them to, to open up. So in the first season, you guys get together and basically you follow these emails out to the town of Hellier, Kentucky, Let's 
start in Hellier as you're driving into the town. What's mm-hmm. your first impression when you come in there? I think this is a very poignant moment in the first season when you're seeing the place that you're going to and realizing, oh man, what's what have we gotten ourselves into? Yeah, there is Hellier. You make this turn off of the highway and then you drive for another, you know, 30 minutes and you go to this spot where there's clearly they, they had thought about the highway sort of continuing over that area. And it's just sort of sitting there vacant. What's funny is that you actually see in season two, they're starting construction on the highway again. So at any rate, you realize that it's a very isolated community. Um, There is, and I don't mean this in any offensive way at all. It's this way in a lot of towns. There's, There's no reason to go there. Unless you live there or you know somebody who lives there. Right. Yeah. It's not it's not a through way. And so it's there. There's a lot of um a lot of no trespassing signs, a lot of, you know, stay off of my property, a lot of uh there, there's only one actual place of commerce in the entire town. It's a gas station slash pizza store slash uh, you know, post office. Yep. And and it's yep. all in one. And I think a lot of people sort of shake their head and they're like, okay, I know what kind of a place you're talking about. So, so we roll up with the thought of trying to find David and going around talking to as many people as we can. And it sort of takes off from there. So let's talk about, you get into Hellier, but there's also, okay, you've had the emails from David, who is this person who says he's being, you know, his family's being tortured by these little green men. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Terry Wrist and where that name comes into play because it's such an integral part of the story from season one and season two. Yeah. Terry is the continuing enigma that we find some answers to, but uh, are still on a continuing quest. Terry Wrist is so the person who put David in contact with Greg. That's the first time the name comes up. Uh, Greg is receives emails from this guy named David and all of this information about what he's experiencing. One of the questions that Greg asks David, he said, how did you get this email address? How do you know who I am? And David said, oh, through a mutual friend of ours, Terry Rist. And Greg, of course, doesn't know anybody by this name. He doesn't know anybody by this online handle. Um the only reference that could be found of Terry Wrist was in a an interview in the index of a rather then obscure occult book um, called The Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. Euphonauts being an old-fashioned term for, for aliens, you know, the pilots of, of the UFOs. And so there's an interview with this guy named Terry Wrist who says, uh, I've been using this coded cipher to get into contact with aliens and I'm interested in caving and I'm interested in, in all of this sort of strangeness. And I went out and I met Indrid Cold, the alien from 1968 in Point Pleasant. And Terry Wrist in this interview is claiming all of this stuff. It's obviously the guy who apparently David knew and put him in contact with. So that's that's Terry's background. Of course, the case took another turn when, after David disappeared, Terry then started to email Greg. 
Did you, you ever think? think oh, I oh, sorry. I was wondering, like your theory on to go back to David Christie, because like you know there was no record of him anywhere, right. and I thought maybe at first, like I know there's a couple of colleges around Pikeville that maybe he was a doctor who came there for a short term to teach in the college. Mm-hmm. Maybe that could have been him, or and I I said this right away. I was like, I wonder if he, it was like he was using a pseudonym, but he was using his first name and his wife's first name just to. You know, I mean, I don't know what what kind of theory did you guys have on him of of what who this guy was. What's funny is David. It's it's not like it was a a one off email. I mean, this was this was months of contact. I have stacks of papers of emails from David Christie. We we read out one of them in the series, the the big prevalent one, but there was other contact. So he he was very clear that he wants anonymity because Greg. And his wife, Dana, they, they run a paranormal website, you know, Planet Weird. They run a museum and travel around with, with haunted uh, and occult objects. And so they're, they're public figures in this field doing research. David said, you guys can come out and record, but I have to remain anonymous. So, so yeah, we think that it might have very easily been a fake name to begin with. Um, what's funny is you do all of these searches for a Dr. David Christie. Um, There are a couple that pop up. And one of the things that, of course, we didn't include in the series because nothing came of it was, uh, you know, people send us the info, have you seen this Dr. David Christie in, in, uh, you know, Washington? Have you seen this one in New Mexico? It's like, oh, yeah, we have. We, I was there when Greg left some hilariously awkward voicemails with those doctor secretaries. Um, <laughs> I would love to hear some of those included in the outtakes. Yeah, it's great. So, but we went to the source. We went to the county records office. We went to everything we could. Nobody ever had any residency in that area. So, it's it's a fake name. Of course, the other thing is that. David sent pictures. Um, one of the things that we don't didn't include in the series uh, that we also did is we looked at the EXIF data uh, from those pictures uh, to see what's going on there. That's something that might come in later. I hope I'm not giving a future spoiler away. But basically, we found out that the pictures were taken when he said they were taken. Um, of course, he took them with an old-fashioned point-and-shoot camera. Uh, so there's no geotag. There's no. It's not a smartphone where you can tell where the picture was taken. But those pictures were taken within the time frame of the emails correctly, as he said. He's he's. It's fascinating. He's a really articulate guy, very well read. He's an educated man. You can tell off of, based off the way he writes. Somebody sent those emails, and it's it's a mystery. Well, it makes sense to think that it could have been someone who was not born and raised in the Pikeville area, like you said, um, if they're identifying as a doctor, like Brendan said, you know, whether they were coming from the university or there are several, I work at one of the local hospitals and I know that there are several hospitals down there in that area where a lot of residents pass through as well. And so it's, that was my inclination is when this guy said he had been there and, you know, all of a sudden he disappeared either number one, he was too frightened to talk about what had happened to him or his family, or maybe he had been in residency there or he was Mm -hmm. a professor for just a short time and passed through and was gone because I, 
I know this area vaguely, and I don't know how many people would have been following Planet Weird at that point. You know what I mean? Like it, sure. it's it it's just would seem kind of I don't want to say out of the ordinary, but I think someone who had a little more maybe exposure to uh, the paranormal world would have known who Greg was basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. It's, it's odd. It's, I mean, let's, let's be honest that a 60 something year old um, doctor is, is not Greg's primary demographic, you know? And so it's like, right. but apparently Terry was keeping an eye on him. So, yeah. So you guys are in Hellier. You go there and you just do the boots on the ground you know, kind of a discovery of, okay, you get there and there is no David. Mm -hmm. So you guys are staying at a cabin out there. And I think one of the most interesting parts in season one was a really interesting um, session that you guys did on the porch, the Estes method, that they actually, you were kind of the guinea pig for this experiment that yielded some really interesting uh, information that came into play at that time, but even more so in season two, once you guys started connecting the dots. Yeah. You know, part of this, it's kind of a two-pronged search, and that's, I think, part of the fun of it. It's a search for seemingly very real individuals, and it's also a search for this phenomena, this high strangeness. I don't, I've gotten to the point where I don't like necessarily attaching labels to things. And so I just sort of, we all just sort of refer to it as the phenomena, you know, um, whatever is out there. And so, yeah, one of the, one of the things we did, uh, basically in the daytime, we'd be doing our boots on the ground. Like, let's go to all the records. Let's knock on doors. Let's see if we can find this guy. And then in nighttime, we would sit and try to do different psychical experiments, different, uh, alien contact or spirit contact experiments to see if if the beings would talk to us. So, yeah, one night we sat sat down and, and decided to do an Estes method session on the porch. What did you what do you remember? Because it, it's so I've done sessions like that when we've gone to different uh, locations to investigate and I find it to be very disorienting because mm-hmm. your senses are all blocked. You're not hearing any outside. You're just hearing what's coming through on that box. What was going through your mind as you were doing that session? What do you remember from that? You know, I remember, it, so I am, the Estes method is something that Carl and Michelle and I developed uh, in Estes Park, Colorado, naturally. So we uh, basically were blocking off, we're, we're creating sensory deprivation combined with a spirit box. Because it, it got so tiring of being like, well, people can kind of hear what they want to hear out, out of this device, you know? And so we thought, well, let's let's just totally have one person listen to it with big soundproof headphones and with a blindfold so they just get lost in the noise. So it's not like it's something that I hadn't done before. I mean, I had done it for dozens and dozens of hours. And, and I sat back uh, a little bit weirded out because we're sitting in this very foreign territory for us. Um, asking these beings to get in contact. Uh, But I remember it being a long session. I was under for probably an hour and a half. Um, And then they were 
they just kept they they kept saying a lot of words that related to the mountains that related to different animals and creatures and then at one point i received it was the weirdest thing because i just get lost in this sound um like we said you know like we're all kind of like sound snobs you know i just get so used to my using my ears and I'm just sitting there, and then suddenly, as my eyes are closed, this clearest thing just pops up right in front of my vision, as if it's just right in front of me. I see a bright pink background uh, sitting on a table, uh, and on the middle of the table is a is a tin can, and and so that's I it felt so weirdly poignant and random. That while I was just in this almost trance-like state, that would just show up in my vision. That I, I'm sure, glad I said something. Oh yeah, I mean, when you said that, I was like, when we were watching it. I'm like, what a tin can! Yeah. But then it all obviously becomes clear, and you make that connection, which I'm sure we'll get into. You make that connection to something else too, which was like, you know, I've read a lot of John Keel stuff, and I didn't even like think about that. I was like, holy crap! But. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're talking about if you take one word away from the Hellier series, it should be the very first word that Carl speaks in this series, synchronicity. (laughs) Sure. Synchronicity, which is, I mean, it's such a beautiful thing as all of this plays out over the course of the two seasons. You see all of these random things that you think are so random at the time start to fall into place. And you realize that you guys were all there together in those moments, saying those things, seeing those things for a bigger purpose than you could have ever imagined. Yeah. Tying it all together. I mean, and, and, and that's one of the things you brought it up. The Estes method, you know, when you watch a lot of these shows, and, you, you know, I've been on tons of investigations where everyone's listened to the spirit box out loud and they all interpret something that's being said differently. You know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. Oh, I thought it said book. Well, I thought it said couch. You know what I mean? And and there's no real clear picture. So it's kind of like a toss up to being like, well, where's the spirit leading us? And I think it's incredible to do that to where one person is just completely unaware of what anybody's asking. And I think it, I mean, the clarity of stuff that was coming through when you guys were sitting on that porch was incredible and you had no idea. You had no clue. You were just repeating no. what you heard and yeah. it made sense. Well, thanks. You're just, you're just a megaphone for whatever you're hearing. You're just spouting it out. And you know, it's funny. I've, I've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about what makes this work because we, we weren't expecting it to just sort of go out into the paranormal world and have all these people doing this. You know, we we thought and and you know what honestly I think one of the theories that I'm that I'm starting to possibly coincide with I think that that no, it it basically gives your subconscious brain an excuse to hear sound. If if you were just listening to white noise, you would think that you're just sort of like making it up. But maybe it gives just the right amount of buffer, you know, for, for whatever it is to, to appear within that sound. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've done your experiments there. And what did you think was the most important part of your first visit there in Hellier? If you took away anything from that, what was the moment that made you stop and say, 
oh my gosh, there is really something to the phenomena that people are experiencing here. Honestly, I think it's realizing that it wasn't an isolated incident, that we're talking to these people and realizing, oh, David's not the only person who's had something strange happen. There's there's this whole town. Uh, there's a lot of people who've seen weird things. So A, that added some validity to it. And then B, kind of coincided with some of the reading that we that we started to do where I think there's a possibility that Hellier from 2012 to 2013 was, as John Keel would say, a window area, uh, that something appeared, some weird stuff happened, and then it kind of closed off. Uh, that was a pretty big realization, and it sort of changed the whole game, where it's like, well, how do we find one while it's open? How, how can I go to one of these places? And that becomes a, a continuing theme in season two. So what do you think happened there in that time span? Why, why Hellier? What would have been so special about that little town that John Kill's phenomena that he wrote about in the Mothman prophecies, like you said, these windows of time mm-hmm. that kind of open, we're talking about interdimensional time travel. And like I said, you guys, if you haven't watched the first season do that before you watch the second because the second gets deep really quickly (laughs) (laughs) it's just like this you just dive head first and you're like oh my god this is this is intense but why do you think that time period why hell you're what made that area special enough that these people were experiencing this phenomena it's an excellent question you know i uh i think that the the people there so so hellier and this is one of the one of the words that comes up a lot in season 2 is liminality. I think that hellier is an in-between area. It's an in-between town. It sort of is transitioning. I mean even economically, uh the coal mines are shutting down. You know, the the big power plants and stuff, people are moving out of that area or in a sort of area mentally where they're sort of in a transitional space. I think that that's an important overall mental subconscious factor between a community that can enable something to open up. Of course, what exactly made it just strange enough, I I don't know, but that's that's my educated guess. So some being someone who was born and raised here, I can tell you I 100% agree with that theory because even in the time, you know, I'm 36. I've lived almost You're my entire Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I've lived my almost my entire life in this area. And what I have seen over the course of my years are the coal mines closing down. You see a lot of chemical plants. You see a lot of natural resources in this area, but a lot of the business is moving out. People are moving out and generations are dying out that have been here for so many years. And so it is, it has gone through this transitional period of, you know, a lot of people don't know whether to stay or whether to go. And, um, but on top of that, they mentioned something that I found very curious. Yeah. I can't remember who said it in season two, but talking about the number of, and I, I say this in all due respect, mentally ill people in the area mm-hmm. that we live in. Mm-hmm. Drugs have become 
a, a huge problem. And so yeah, it's almost like a, a zombie land in some of these places, like with the people on drugs. I mean, it's it's bad. It can be. And but yeah. even in the town that we live in, in Huntington, 50,000 residents here, roughly. This town exists because of Marshall University, because of the hospitals. But I can drive from my house five five minutes in either direction and hit a major psychiatric hospital. Mm, and we're yeah. talking about psychiatric hospitals that are absolutely filled to the brim with people to the point that we are transporting patients out to other areas. And so you do have this area that is almost in this physical, emotional, financial unrest, to say yeah. the least. Yeah. It's funny. I don't think that... <sighs> You know, I think Greg gives a really good analogy in season two where it's like the people who have high strangeness enter their lives and surround them. The people who who are inundated with poltergeist activity, the people are who are have live in haunted houses, who have all of these strange sightings. So many of them have difficulties in other areas of their life. And and it's it's an easy thing to for the skeptics to pass off where it's like, oh, well, of course, a lot of people who claim this are have mental illness. Well, maybe that's because their conscious mind exists in just the right place for contact to occur. Maybe everybody else is just blocking it off. And so part of our game is changing our – you know, as much as we can, even artificially or with technology as you see in season two, how do we shake up what our brains are thinking about? Um, that's sort of a continuing idea. Yeah. It's this evolution that you see from season one to season two after you've been there and you realize the place that you're dealing with, the people that you're dealing with, you see this very poignant evolution of mm -hmm. what you guys are doing. And so when you finished up season one, where did you guys think you would go from there? Did you know there would be a season two? Did you know that this would all continue? Or was it more like, we got to wait and see if we get more emails? Yeah, it's funny. We we thought that we were going to continue the story um, simply because after season one. So, so we had already, I guess, to clarify the timeline, uh, the first three episodes of season two were already filmed by the time season one was released. I mean, this this was all within the last year and a half that we did all of this, you know? Uh, so yeah, we, we had a general idea that we still had more we wanted to tell. And we got so fascinated with all of the reading that we were doing that we were like, well, this is this seems like a story that the paranormal world should hear. We had no idea that Greg was going to receive emails from another witness that would become fairly crucial to to the ongoing investigation in season two and are, is that witness you're talking about the young woman the young lady yeah. okay yeah. Amy. i wanted to i wanted to bring that up just in the simple fact there's something that she said to you guys and it reverts back to a story that i had heard years ago and i had listened to this podcast for it was a comedy podcast they did a lot mm -hmm. of you know paranormal stories maybe you've heard of it the unbelievable podcast but oh, okay uh, um, they had did this story about this guy and his name was Richard Shaver. I don't know if you've heard this story, but he talks about these race of aliens called the Daros and Taros. And basically this story starts out with him working in this factory and he starts to hear what he thinks is his 
fellow co his co-workers like he's hearing their thoughts you know he's hearing these voices and he's like what is going on and then he starts to realize that it's not coming from his co-workers it's coming from somewhere else and it mm-hmm. ends up he finds this secret passage to the basement he gets in the elevator and hits the basement button twice and he ends up in this cave system this cave city with all these creatures called the daros and they're kidnapping humans and putting them through what he called meat torture mm-hmm. now one of the things that i think was said in that girl's emails like there's some kind of or she maybe it's when she's on the video chat with with greg she says something about how you access this tunnel is through an elevator that takes you down yeah now, I mean, and that to me was like, well, this something kind of strange here. There's two different stories tied together. This guy from like the 1930s is telling this story and then she's telling it now. It was like, I thought it was kind of strange because it brought up aliens underground and cave systems and murder and kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Of course, putting our skeptic hats on, it's like, well, is that a story that she had heard or read? But but yeah, honestly, that, that's what I thought, too. But yeah, yeah, it's just weird. I mean, after talking with her, it, that doesn't appear to be the case. This is clearly not her bag, you know. So she, uh, yeah, basically presented this entirely new. But but she hit on some key points. She knew things that she should not have known, such as, you know, things like the the stuff that related to the emails that hadn't been released. I mean, the project had not been released, and and so it was just bizarre that she was hitting on this stuff. Um, it was worth looking into, but also a lot scarier uh, because her claims were were scarier. So, yeah. Well, that's a that's one of the things. Like we are, we do a lot of true crime on our podcast, but mm-hmm. we wanted it to make it kind of like we do a little bit of everything because our background we're both paranormal investigators. But if you look at some of the statistics of like these areas, you see a lot of these places that have these cave systems. There's a lot of people who've been missing or murdered over the years. And a lot of them are unsolved. So could it all tie together? And that's what, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, holy crap, this this could be that whole wormhole yeah. of that effect. Like, this could be why some of these people are missing, because maybe this is true. Dude, you gotta, you gotta land in Tyler, Strand, Tyler Strand's messenger. He'll chat with you all day about this stuff. <laughs> so oh, oh, man, like... <laughs> It's well, well, but it's it's yeah, it's crazy. And you can see the kind of the fear in like, you know, and, and that's why I loved watching Tyler Strand on this, because I've been that way with Annie. We've done cases here where it's like, let's go talk to people. And she's like, no, this is a bad area. But I'm the first one to jump out of the car and run in there without, you know, the fear. And I see Tyler <laughs> mm-hmm. do that thing. And you could see almost that fear on Greg's face when he hears this story. And he's like, oh, well, what if this turns into like some murder thing? Like. What are we supposed to do? But I would have been the first one down there like, let's go, let's go, let's go. <laughs> there's there's a balance for sure. There is. But that's that's part of why he is on the team. He uh, he, he gets us out of the car, you know. <laughs> so you guys receive these emails from this young woman named Amy who yeah. has these claims, just some unbelievable things. Like you said before, we're talking um, murder, torture little green men underground. I mean, it it just, it goes deep really quickly. Mm -hmm. And so how does your mentality turn from there? How does that kind of turn everything on its head for you guys? Well, I think I come from a, the same background as you guys, but I think I, I and the rest of the team has a pretty hard wall where it's like, nope, I don't do, I don't do true crime. That's, that's not my thing, you know? And so I'm like, right. well, 
well, shoot, what this this isn't fun. It's not fun for me anymore to sit back and be like, oh, should we look into a missing persons report? Should we do this? You know, it's like that's I I don't that's not my thing. I, I I'm nervous about being here. Of course, I was suspicious of Amy, but uh, we all have enough curiosity naturally to go chase this this down and see what we can see ourselves but uh when it actually got scary it was when we talked to other people in town who were corroborating some of the stories where it was like oh yeah there's there's people who meet up in the caves and do like crazy stuff and and we don't know what's going on i don't think we know anything that law enforcement doesn't know you know so it's not like i have this like guilt on my consciousness we're just talking about what the townspeople talk about and kind of putting it out there but that's man it's a it's a whole other other ball game at that point i mean it, it takes an entirely different twist because you're watching it expecting just you know aliens and little green men and all of a sudden you're talking about some of these insane and like you i, I think we had all had to step back and say okay is this person really legit or mm-hmm. could you know because it it turns out you know she had been in some trouble and so you have to take everything with a grain of salt, except for the fact that there were other people talking about it, too. Right. Right. She also said a couple of key words. Uh, she said, uh, this is a direct quote from her email. Uh, she said, slough is little troll looking things, but powerful. How would she have possibly known that word? Is our question because that relates to what Terry had emailed Greg. Um, There's a little, little tiny bit of handwritten text in the corner of, of, of the image that Terry sent to Greg uh, that said slough S L U F. And I, that, that was a weird one. That was, that was odd. And she also, didn't she use euphonauts too? Mm-hmm. She said euphonauts. Who says yeah. euphonauts? Yeah. And, right. And, and so we, exactly. And yeah. so we're breaking nobody, it down. Nobody I've ever heard has used that but you guys. Yeah. And I mean, and from the area, you know what I mean? Why in that area would that, that, that would be a, that would yeah. be a turn. So I'm looking back at some of the old stuff that has been posted about this case. And it should also be stressed that like when she sent this to Greg, there was no public indication that there was going to be a documentary about the Goblins case. Like it was just an article that Greg had made five years ago, you know? And so (laughs) it was very odd that she started to talk about this stuff. And so we thought, so Greg thought, well, somebody's, somebody's putting us on. We, We have to figure this out. And I'm looking back at old articles that he posted and I'm like, well, maybe she saw this particular JPEG that's way back in the image that says maybe there's a text here that she saw. Maybe, And then it's like, oh, wait, uh, she's a real person. We we found her. It's not like David. She's there. Right. Yeah. Did you ever think that she and David could have been related in some way, that they were sharing their stories and that's how she knew to contact Greg as well? We thought that maybe, we thought that maybe Greg, yeah, that there was, I don't think that her and David knew each other. I think that it's possible that there's some sort of bizarre subsect of the occult community that has Greg's 
on speed dial for the weirdest <laughs> of the weird. <laughs> Congratulations, like, Greg. I know. They're just like putting him into this this contact. But honestly, you know what? I think about it too. What would it have been like if this was never pursued? Well, shoot, I've I've gotten a peek into this man's email inbox. I'm sure you guys get emails like this too. I'm even starting to get a little bit of reports and I love it. You know, you just eat it up. But but how many not to not to discredit or say that they're not as cool, but how many thousands of reports have been sent in to Weekend Weird and Planet Weird about UFOs, about ghosts? Well, who whoever talks about goblins? That's something that piqued Greg's interest. And so it was almost like it was just the right story to continue the pursuit. Yeah, and then they send pictures to back it up that seem mm. pretty legit. You get you get people who, you know, look at footprints for a living, you know, people who like Bigfoot researchers or whatever, and they see these dermal ridges in the picture and they're like, There's no way to fake that kind of stuff. I mean, that's yeah. that's legit footprints. I sat back. I got a I got a chance at the last Michigan Paracon that I got to go to for the first time this year. I was all stoked on that. They they uh, the the guys from Finding Bigfoot were there, so I walked up to oh, them yeah. with, with with my little photos, and I was like, "Can you help me explain this?" You know, <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> and it, it was the goblins' photos. They had not seen them before, <laughs> and uh, they were wigged out. It's got dermal ridges. It's if David's a hoax, it is the most elaborate hoax um, that I've ever seen. I don't think it's a hoax because it, it's so you know how. OK, we watched season one of Hellier and we were telling everybody that who was into the paranormal field and into podcasts, you know, check it out because it's so interesting. And especially because, you know, you guys were in our backyard, basically. Yeah. And so I work at a hospital. One of the security guards that works there knows that we do a paranormal podcast. And he was asking me about new things to watch. And I told him about Hellier. And it just so happens. And this is how, you know, these weird synchronicities come about. He used to be a park ranger at a place called Carter Caves State Park. That's in Kentucky, close to where you guys were. And he lived there for some amount of time. And when I start to tell him about the footprints, the three-toed footprints, his eyes get really big and he says, I've seen those before. And I said, what do you mean you've seen those before? And he said that when he was living there, uh, he went to work early one morning. It snowed the night before and he saw these strange footprints and he described them first as bird-like. But he said they were much larger. And what he noticed was strange between them was the long stride. And so he knew that they couldn't have been made by any type of animal. And he says to me, you know, I've lived here for years. I've worked in the caves for years. I've never seen anything like this before. And he sent me the picture. And it is much like what 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 they sent to you guys. Oh, shoot. It's incredible. And I'm like. Holy cow. You know, it's just one more incident of all of this stuff kind of coming together. They're not as mm-hmm. pronounced as the ones you guys got because you, the ones that you guys had were in mud. These were in snow. But, I mean, they're almost, I mean, a dead ringer. They're pretty similar. Three-toed, weird like that. Oh, and he was like, su- he was like super stoked the way he's talking about it. He's like, oh, my God, really? So, yeah. 
That's weird. Well, we'll send them in. Well, yeah, we'll we'll get them in there. If, oh. if that's weird, that's a yeah, weird one. Absolutely. And he then told me that he uh, before he left the area, he had talked to an elderly woman who lived there, who used to tell him about some type of creature that they saw on this road. It was very remote. That she described in almost um, Bigfoot type description. Mm -hmm. So there were other people who were there who had seen the strangeness and he just so happened to get a picture of it that day. Well, I mean, we were, yeah, like you said, we were lucky that our, the footprints that were sent to Greg were in coal slurry kind of mud. Um, I have not seen a snow footprint though. So yeah, it's, it's, you know what, there are creature reports that and and 2012 was not that long ago. You know, this is something that could still be going on. Right. Um, we got to <laughs> more people need to get get in the caves, <laughs> see what's going on as, as Tyler yeah, would say. Right. No, it's true. So so let's talk about we're transitioning into season two. Yeah. And you guys, like I said, you get in super deep straight from the beginning and one of the things that becomes a huge part of season two are the ciphers mm -hmm. that you guys begin working on. So you end up in a place that's in my backyard, Ashland, Kentucky, um, literally 15 minutes from where we're sitting right now. <laughs> what took you to Ashland? How did you link Ashland to Indrid Cold? Uh, yeah. So, uh, how, just out of curiosity, how long have you lived in Ashland or near the Ashland area? My entire life. Oh, yeah. so you, so you could have been, if he was there, you could have been a little girl while he was there. You know, <laughs> here's what's funny. We think that, uh, basically what Terry Rist says, um, I feel like I'm staring at my conspiracy boards right now, trying to narrate this for your audience. Um, <laughs> What, what Terry Rist says is um, the ink and black are isolated still. Terry Rist essentially sent Greg a coded email that has taken uh, several, you know, five years now to break the code. Uh, and that sort of becomes, without giving away any huge spoilers, a big part of season two. Well, one of the very first parts of the emails that we deciphered was Terry saying the ink and black are isolated still. Ink and black is a direct reference, uh, sort of a nickname of sorts for Indrid Cold. We learn that because Terry Rist, in the interview in the back of the occult book by Alan Greenfield, Secret Cipher, he says that he essentially uses this cipher that Alan Greenfield helped uh, promote where he takes different values of different aliens names sees what number that value equals out to and then basically looks at all of these other phrases that correspond because his theory is that when an alien or an ultra terrestrial whatever you want to call them gives a witness their name what they're actually giving is sort of an address, sort of a code to find them. Uh, and so that's the basic thesis of Alan Greenfield and Terry Rist. 
So the game then is looking at these aliens' names, which are usually odd. They're, they're odd names. And plug them into a cipher. And what they use is the occult text, the, the Book of the Law by Aleister Crowley. They see what phrases from that jumbled mess of a book, all of those phrases, equal out to the same number. And then you have basically the alien's location right there in the form of different clues. What he says is that he went to meet Indrid Cold in a town based off of clues from the Book of the Law. He doesn't really give much more than that, except for the clues that he used. So we all sort of got into the cipher, but Carl was the first one to take it to another level, where he thought, I think we could do the same thing. I think we could try to find this location. And based off of all of the clues that he gives, it led us straight to the town of Ashland, Kentucky, which is where we believe Indrid Cold and Terry Rist had a meeting uh, sometime in the late 1970s. And that's crazy. And my mind was instantly blown. So we're watching (laughs) this episode. And the crazy, crazy thing is we had just been talking about going to Ashland for a couple of days before that, you know, there's the, um, the community park that's there and every year they do the Christmas lights there, but they also have the native American burial grounds. Mm -hmm. And for several days before we watched season two of Hellier, we were like, Oh, we need to go to Ashland, take, you know, (laughs) go to the park, take Shay's daughter. And then we're sitting there that night. We were actually going to go that day and it rained here. And instead, we sat here and started Hell Your Season 2. <laughs> so you right. took, you went to Ashland anyway. Yeah, just we did. With us. We yeah. went to yeah. Ashland anyway. And so I can't remember. It it may have been you who said in the series that we they hoped if we were watching, whoever was watching would stop and actually Google things and replay and rewind. And that's yeah. exactly what we did. I looked at Shay and I was like, you got to stop right there because you're talking about uh, Route 52, mm-hmm. which runs, you know, the span of Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia, and areas all along the way. And I'm mentally plotting out this area that you guys were in and connecting the dots and was floored. Like, we stopped after episode two. I was like, I need to process this mm-hmm. and think about the Mothman sightings that they had there. Why would Indrid Cold have been in Ashland, Kentucky, looking at the time frame? Because a lot of the Mothman sightings were linked to tragedies that happened in these areas. And so I spent the rest of the evening, you know, just Googling things, trying to make sense of all of it in my own brain. (laughs) That's exactly what we wanted to happen. It's like we're not we're not sitting here that. Hellier's so weird because, and people, some type, some people get completely turned off of it because for this reason, because there's no closure. We're, we're not claiming to give people closure on this case. We're just saying, here's all of this strangeness, and we're not going to be able to wrap it up in a bow because that's not the nature of paranormal phenomena. No, but that's, what we're, that's what makes it legit. That's what yeah. makes this whole series <laughs> legit. Well, thank you. We're trying to tell the whole story. And so it's like... How do we track backtrack this this story? And in the process of learning everything that we could about Terry Wrist, it led us straight to Ashland, Kentucky, which oddly enough, 
is also directly on a straight linear line. You know, I mean, it's hard to draw a straight line on a globe, but still it's, it's right in line with Point Pleasant with all those, those other spots. So you guys are right, right there on the line. So Carl brings out a map at some point Mm -hmm. and starts literally connecting the dots of all of these locations, even out West that some of this activity had occurred because at one point Tyler goes to Minnesota looking Mm -hmm. for something. And so what was your kind of summation of all of these ley lines in this area for lack of a better word, I guess. You know, we don't really know what to do with that except for to use it as a potential part of the toolbox. Um, Greg would, if, if I were Greg, uh, of course, he would he would want me to bring up the, the sort of the idea that, and I don't I can't correctly cite this author author. It might be Robert Kirk, it might be um, somebody like Josh Cutchin or something. I'm not sure, but basically the theory is that the Fey, these beings, that maybe they can't travel in straight lines, or they have to travel in straight lines. And so the idea was like, oh shoot, well let's see what where these straight lines are, and then it was found that some of the sightings are absolutely straight lines if you draw them on a map with a ruler uh some of the towns and things like that so you know it's weird um but it just becomes another thing just like the cipher where we're like well shoot yeah it could seem like it's you're taking a stab in the dark and you know sometimes you are taking a stab in the dark but but it's it's another thing on the toolbox along with nine or ten other things how far out west did you trace those lines on the map? I mean, I'm just curious if it like does it go through places like Skinwalker Ranch? Does that mm-hmm. line continue all the way through? The only hard hit that Carl had way out west was uh, right over the peak of Mount Shasta. Um, Mount Shasta up in I think it's in Wash. What is it in Washington? Uh, maybe northern, may way northern California, uh, which has its own set of strange reports, but. Uh, I don't believe that Skinwalker has been connected as of yet. My theory, and I'm not in any way any type of theorist, you know, conspiracy theorist, is that when I started to, and this was something that episode uh, two and season two put together for me, was that if you draw, if you look at those lines that Mm -hmm. Carl drew, the one factor that I'm aware of in this area that connects all of those are natural resources. Mm, Yeah. Because you are, you're right there on the river, but even more than that, you have all of these power plants, all of these chemical plants that are in this area along the river. Plus there are underground and I, this, I don't even know that I should say this kind of thing because I don't know how protected this is. My brother works for the Department of Environmental Protection for the state of West Virginia. Okay. And he has, when you guys were talking about Route 52, that's what kind of spurred this memory of this conversation that I had with him. Along the Ohio River, there are areas of underground tunnels where they store natural gas and they are literally cave systems underground that run for miles and miles Mm. that are full of natural gas and so didn't know that uh, yeah no i did not know that i mean the caves are all over the place but i didn't know that specifically yeah so if you're following some of these areas he started drawing those lines on that map and i'm like these could be exactly where these deposits of natural resources are could it have something to do with that i mean if you're talking about 
alien beings that are here for a reason. Is that why they're here? It's possible. I mean, it's 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 so weird. And that's what it's it's another difficult thing to wrap your mind around where it's like, well, there's alien beings. Of course, the first question based off of our natural defensive tendencies is do they have good intentions or not? Right. And so everything <laughs> that I've read about Indrid Cold shows that he's a good guy. But uh, apparently, according to Terry Rist, he is in actuality an alien who's in hiding. And so <laughs> it gets into this question of like, well, shoot, if this guy's in hiding, should we be broadcasting all this? I don't know, but it's fascinating enough and we want to see if it's true. Um, that's, that's an interesting connection there. Did not know that. And I've thought about that for years, too. You see, like, you know, there's been reports of UFO sightings over top of power plants and all that kind of stuff. And maybe maybe energy and fossil fuels or whatever is some kind of thing, even if it's, like, dimensional. Mm-hmm. It could be. We're tapping into something we're not supposed to. I mean, that even gets into, like, the sort of theory about Roswell being connected to, you know, the dropping, the Enola Gay and the dropping of the atomic bomb and all that, you know, based yep. out of Roswell Army Airfield. So... If somebody's watching, maybe that's the places that they're paying attention to. And the TNT bunkers in Point Pleasant that are tied to, you know, that all goes back to World War II where they stored the ammunitions there. And if you go there to the TNT bunkers, you see those old chemical ponds that are still out there. And it just, you know, it's another, I guess, another layer of, I don't want to say government conspiracy, but you know that's why that area was created was to store all of that because we actually um the person who owned that property before it became the tnt bunkers we are friends with his grandson and uh, yeah he just passed about a year ago and he lived well into his 90s and they owned the property for years and he is the one who sold it off to them and when they created uh the bunkers just for that reason. And so you go out there now and you realize there's nothing else out there. That was its sole purpose was to be kind of a one and done mm-hmm. create it and leave. Yeah. I mean, yeah, go you go ahead. No, I was yeah. just going to say they're just sitting there now. They're just abandoned. When you guys went there in this, the second season, was that your first time going there? Yeah. Yeah. It's my first time in Point Pleasant. It was awesome. It's, it's so cool. It's pretty crazy, but we're watching this and this is something else that's weird. And I said this to Annie too, every place that you guys have visited, it's like weird. Cause I've been to every single one of them and it's <laughs> like, you know, and especially when you go to uh, Somerset, I was like, I had no idea that all this phenomenon was going on there either when I had mm-hmm. been there. But when you walked into the bunkers that you guys did that, that, uh, session in, with the spirit box. We yeah. had just been there for Mothman festival and we go every year with a group of our friends. And at, after the, you know, the festivals over at night, we go to the TNT bunkers and you guys walked into the same exact one that we did our spirit box <laughs> session. In, and we had no idea. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I knew is because it said something about Russ on the wall. Cause yeah. one of our friend's name is Russ. And then it said Connor inside the, the bunker. So I was like, Holy crap, we've been in that one and we've done a spirit box. Session That's awesome. That I think it's like the third one in way back there. Yeah. yeah. And there's so many of them, but I mean, it's just crazy that you wound up in that one. Yeah. Annie had a really weird experience the first time we went there with something that could essentially have been injured cold or somebody because they say he's called the grinning man too. 
And so that place, you know, is it's it's weird. It's got a weird vibe to it. It does. Whatever. Whatever remnant is still there, it could be like we say, you know, maybe, maybe it's just a side effect. Maybe that weirdness is still lingering. So it seemed like a natural place to go. So you guys go in there and you do another session, but this time, Dana is wearing the God helmet, mm-hmm. which I think is freaking phenomenal. <laughs> so tell us about that experience in the TNT bunkers. So what we decided to do is. You know, even though it's not like Terry Wrist in his email was saying you have to go to Point Pleasant, there wasn't any direct answer. Basically, our thought was, well, if all of this stuff is about Indrid Cold and it's about potentially tying into the Mothman prophecies or whatever could have been happening there, if Hellier was a window of high strangeness, it seems that Point Pleasant probably was too. So uh, let's see what happens when we go to to another to another window area. Uh, and basically, we sat down, and and what we decided to do was sort of take the Estes method that we did in season one, and we've done in so many places since then, and to amplify it. So what we did is we had Dana, uh, Greg and Dana got a hold of from, <laughs> it's not like they bought this on eBay, but they got this from like a research lab in Ontario uh, that is something called the Corin helmet, or the God helmet, or the Persinger helmet, um, something that was developed by... Uh, a couple of researchers, um, Persinger and and Corin, I believe they they basically have this band that you can wear around your brain that is putting little mag- electromagnetic fields in certain areas around the brain, um, thus potentially inducing a paranormal uh, sort of a a higher level of consciousness, sort of entering into another state of mind. And so, and I and I should also say as a disclaimer, don't don't strap magnets to your brain. That's not that's not what we're doing. And <laughs> and a lot of people, I mean, honestly, and I don't want to harp on anybody directly or anything. Even there's even some like little shows and series that that are they say doing a a helmet session, but um, and they're just putting like magnets into you know like superhero masks and stuff like that. Like that's. That's not the way it works. It's something that's an actual research device that you have to get from these particular people. Basically, what our thought was is let's have Dana strap into this and send a signal out to whatever is there, mentally think about it, try to get in contact with this phenomena, the aliens, the the beings, the critters, whatever you want to call them, and then we'll just kind of put that big beam out there and see what happens. So much like your first session in Hellier, mm-hmm. what was your thought process as this was going on? Was it more intense because Dana was there doing that in conjunction or maybe more intense because of the location that you were in? What was your feeling? What were your feelings and your thoughts as that was happening? It was intense. It was louder and it was a little bit more unsettling. Um, Mothman's a scary thing, you know, and we're sitting right. in these bunkers, right? And you guys have been there. It's a, it's a freaky place, but but we're going to sit down and we're going to ask for aliens to get in contact with us. I was never nervous. I was more interested to see what happens. One of the important things that I think we want to stress in order to keep the validity of your, your results in, in check is that you want to make sure that the person who is acting as the receiver knows as little as possible. So 
I didn't even necessarily know. Of course, I couldn't hear the questions they were asking. I couldn't hear what Dana was talking about. But in, when I do a session, I, I try to go in as blind as possible um, so that everything – so I don't have something on my mind, you know, and, and I don't want my own mind to be playing tricks on me. And so we always recommend – you know, I would recommend if you're ever going to try a session, go into a location and whoever you're going to have do the method don't tell them anything, you know, and, and see if that corroborates results even further. So I, I didn't know exactly what their tactics were, but I was interested to see that uh, when Dana's session ended, my session kind of ended as well. And so when you guys left there, were there any, I guess, residual effects for her using the God helmet or the location that you've been in? Did anything freaky happen after that? Did it take some time to recover from that mentally, physically, emotionally? Did it take a toll on you guys after you left the bunkers? Yeah, Dana especially, um, she says that it takes her sometimes as much as a week, um, especially the first of three days after she does a session like that. It's not like this is something that she's doing every night. You know, this is something that... that um, she's only done several times, maybe 10 or, or 12 times, I think now. Um, but yeah, she, she was weirded out by the experience, but she was so excited with the results because she's thought that there were, and she might be right, that there's some potential breakthroughs or ideas in, in how extraterrestrial, ultra terrestrial communication can occur. Now, I wanted to, and I don't want to give too much away for people who haven't watched at this point, but Something was mentioned in that session. It was a gateway. Mm -hmm. And it was mentioned several times. I mean, did you guys, I'm, I'm sure you realized it, but did that play out in any potential way? Because it was mentioned in several different sessions that you guys had done throughout, you know, the episodes, throughout yeah. going to different locations. It was mentioned in Carl, it was mentioned in Carl's thing as well that he did. Yeah. 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 You're right. It's a continuing analogy. Yeah. I don't have the answer, but yeah, it's there. The gateway and the flap. The flap interest, that, mm -hmm. I think that just that terminology, because again, you start to think of physical locations that can tie into, you know, these, I don't want to call them psychic experiences that you have, but, you know, as you're doing these experiments, these, again, these synchronicities all begin to line up. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how you guys begin making the connections, especially with the numerology of all of this, which takes, <laughs> you know, a huge turn at the end of season two. Yeah. Yeah. You blew my mind with that shit. You were, I was like, <laughs> oh my God. I was like, grab my hand <laughs> on my head. Like, are you serious right now? With this? <laughs> Thank you. I had the same reaction, uh, over and over again. Every time I stared at that for sure. Well, I, w I wanted to say something earlier because you said, you know, people, some people, don't understand it or don't get it because like he didn't gift wrap some, you know, conclusion at the end of it. Yeah. And I've said this before, like talking about the Mothman phenomena. If you watch the movie, the Richard Gere movie, the Mothman prophecies, one of the guys in that movie, it's the, it's the doctor that he goes to Chicago to talk to. Mm -hmm. He says something in there that I, that I think is absolutely like a great line to say. And he, Richard Gere asked me, he goes, what do they want? And he says, would you explain yourself to a cockroach? <laughs> and I find that intriguing because it's like they, you know, whatever these these are, uh, you know, ultra terrestrials, aliens, some kind of elemental, they might be on a different thought process, obviously, than we are. And maybe they're higher 
they're a higher form of thinking. I mean, why, why, why would you look at a, an, an, you know, a bug and explain yourself to that bug? You know what I mean? That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whoever, whatever we're getting glimpses of or tapping into for brief moments certainly seems to be something that is potentially beyond our intelligence, which I think intimidates and scares a lot of people. Yeah. In season two, you guys have the opportunity to speak with Tanya uh, Derenberger, mm-hmm. which I thought was an incredibly interesting um, interview. So for for anyone listening who doesn't know, you know, Woody Derenberger was the man who in the 1960s had this uh, communication with Indrid Cold. And he said that this communication lasted you know, basically the course of his lifetime, he mm-hmm. moved away, he came back to the area, but Tanya remembers Indrid as well, along with members of Indrid's family. Mm-hmm. What was it like meeting her, talking with her, the information that she gave you guys, what was your gut feeling about all of that? What was your takeaway? Oh, it's so strange. You know, I think that there is you have to you have to have sort of a skeptic hat on sometimes and a believer hat on sometimes when you're talking with people who are claimed alien contactees. Um, you have to go in and sit and talk with them in a full-on believer hat. You know, like let's see what did he look like, what did he sound like, how what do you remember about this, about this, about this. And, you know, if you're talking to Tanya Derenberger, she's claiming that she's also been in contact with injured cold throughout her life. Not only that, she goes to say that her son, his sons, um, injured cold, the ultra terrestrial, his sons are are on Earth now and, and they're going around doing work. And she gave us descriptors of them. And it shakes up your worldview a little bit when you think that there's actually a possibility that these two beings are uh, amongst us and maybe we can't tell. And so (laughs) I sit back and think, okay, if the Indrid Cold story is true, let's follow along with the family and see what else they have to say. And that's the thing that, that kind of shocks me. It seemed like nobody else was talking to her. You know, so many people are fascinated with Indrid Cold. Well, she's saying that Indrid Cold still shows up in her in her house, you know, every several months. Like, that should be somebody <laughs> worth talking to. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, well, shoot, what's going on? Of course, she says that something happened with Indrid, and I won't necessarily give that that whole thing away for people who haven't watched yet. But uh, how can we find him? Let's figure it out with also the idea thinking that it's possible that she has her own agenda, you know? And so it's like, well, well, how do we walk that line? I'm still kind of finding my way. Uh, but trying to be healthily suspicious with with it with talking talking to these people because it's fascinating info regardless it is i i messaged her i don't know it's been a few months back i didn't hear anything back from her i know that she wrote a book that i have not read about mm-hmm. their basically their life you know after uh her father had this uh contact with Indrid cold did she ever say to you guys why Indred or his sons were here, what their purpose was, 
why they continued the communication seemingly just with them. Mm -hmm. She says that they are here to bring a message of peace, which is, which is a classic alien thing. And I kind of love it, you know, where it's like the, yeah, we're here to, to bring a peace, peace be with your people. And, and from my peace. Yeah, exactly. I come in peace. That's what I'm looking for. And so they're sitting there, but they, she said also, she told us that there are other families who are in contact with the colds as well. And she said she got that information from Indrid and his sons, but she does not know who those other families are. So she thinks that there are others out there, um, that they are trying to talk with people, but they realize that they can't just come out and talk to the president because et cetera, et cetera. Then you kind of fall into these Hollywood tropes, right? So it's it's a fascinating space to walk in um, because we are getting these descriptors of people. She said that Indrid Cold's sons are in their late 40s and they hang out together and one of them has dark hair and one of them has blonde hair and they dress in jeans and t-shirts and I'll be honest, I don't know if I believe her. I I like in classic X-Files fashion, I want to believe, but I, you, you you know, of course, every time I'm at the grocery store, I'm looking for guys who look like that, <laughs> you know? <Right. laughs> Let's see. <laughs> Let's see. Well, it, you have to be uh, a healthy skeptic because if you fell into all of these stories, all the wormholes, you would never get anything else accomplished, basically. You have to kind of step back and say, okay, we've heard the story. Here's that part. Can we tie any of it together? Does it make sense in what we're looking at? Um, and I think when when we watched the interview with her, we were kind of the same way. Just, okay, that's good information to know. We'll keep that in mind. And, um, and we'll continue and it, on our way. Yeah. And continue on your way. Exactly. So that, yeah, now, now I'm going to be looking at everybody like, well, that guy's got a T-shirt on. And that guy's got jeans. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> Does he have a mullet? <laughs> <laughs> Looks like the 80s, something going on. So so <laughs> she she gave this whole descriptor of them. And... That is also, and I and I hope that people are thinking all of the same things that we are. So Terry Rist, in a, in a weird way, and I'm I'm really not trying to discredit her in any way. She's a nice lady, but Terry Rist gives this almost seemingly more realistic account of Indrid Cold, where it's like he he's basically saying this being came down, had an initial contact with this guy on the highway. And then sort of went into hiding, you know? And so if he's out there, um, Terry gives us more clues to continue to pursue that, for sure. There was an interesting um, experiment that played out in season two on a couple of different occasions um, with hypnosis. Mm -hmm. That I thought was interesting and a little frightening at the same time. And so they show clips of of something that Greg and some other, um, you know, some of his other friends had done a few years back, I believe, of one of his friends being put under a level of hypnosis and kind of having this experience that was almost like an alien abduction. Yeah. And so you guys repeat this with Carl 
mm-hmm. not to the level of alien abduction, but to kind of how it played out for you guys. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, on hypnosis to kind of suggest that these, maybe if these people are saying they're being abducted by aliens, they don't actually have to leave their own body to do this, that it's Mm -hmm. more a mental state of mind that they're having. It's really, it's a really fascinating experiment that I was, I was happy we were able to get out in the wild. That is one of Greg's uh, many brainchilds about in terms of, of contact experiments where basically his thought was, um, I want to get, we want to get abducted by aliens. Let's see what it's like. And without, you know, and he, <laughs> knowing him, he's also done this as well, going to these contactee spots and laying on the ground and say, take me, it's my turn, you know, but it's like, well, how can we potentially induce that as well? Maybe uh, alien abductions have a non-physical aspect is the basic theory. Um, And that, of course, I'm sure upsets a lot of the nuts and bolts people who are into UFOs. Maybe there's something to that as well. But the thought was uh, maybe abduction scenarios occur within the human mind, but that doesn't mean that they're not real, you know. And so the idea that he had was, Let's get a hypnotist who is willing to come in and hypnotize one of us into thinking that we're being abducted by aliens and not let him walk us through the whole experience, just start the initial encounter and see what happens. And what happened was, frankly, terrifying. <laughs> I mean, right. you watch – yeah, you watch it and it's like this dude is is in something right now. He's having an experience. And so – you know, I think that there's three possibilities, and I think any of the three of them is interesting with that kind of experiment. I think that it's possible, first of all, that his subconscious was making it up. I mean, who knows what was down there, and that was, and that was something that was happening within his own mind. I think that the more I think about it, I think that that's less and less likely, um, but we have to admit that that's – who knows? Maybe that's happening. I think that the second possibility – is that it was an accidental regression therapy session. Um, maybe something had happened to him in the past and and the hypnotist tapped him back into that memory that had been blockaded down in his mind. I think that the third possibility, and the one that I think I agree with the most, is that maybe it maybe it tapped him in to something. Maybe it created a string a highway, so to speak, that just, boom, like shot him up into having that sort of encounter with these beings. So so anyway, our, our thought going forward with it was, well, what else can we do? Maybe let's have a hypnotist come in and see what, see what our mind is thinking about, see what our subconscious has to say about the case. And it was interesting. One of the, one of the things and I'm I'm totally giving away a spoiler for maybe like a deleted scene or something, but I, w- I was actually hypnotized as well. Um, we just included Carl's session because there was it was a longer, more drawn-out session that kind of fit in. Mine kind of went off in a weird other path. But being hypnotized in general is a weird thing. Do you want to tell the... us anything about that? I mean, is there anything that you you feel like you wouldn't give away, but 
you know, just, I, I guess, without any spoilers, anything mm-hmm. that you would like to share from your hypnosis session? Because when they started, okay, when you guys were sitting there and you're kind of going around saying, okay, who do we think we should hypnotize? I'm mentally putting myself in that room and saying, there is no way in hell I'm going to be the person that they are going to hypnotize. Brendan's there. Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, he would do it. Not me at all. So like I said, without any spoilers, Mm -hmm. any hints as to what happened during your session? I was lucky because I got to go second. So we didn't we didn't know what Lonnie, the he's the hypnotist, Lonnie Scott, check him out online. He's a he's a nice guy. We didn't know what Lonnie was going to be doing. We didn't know if he was going to be straight up doing the same thing that he did uh with Jason with the full on abduction experience. And so it was like who should go? We all kind of agreed Carl should go because in our thought, Carl's kind of the mind, the the eyes of everybody who's watching. In in a strange way, everybody's watching the Hellier case through Carl's eyes. He's the one pointing the camera at everything, and so it's like, well, let's have let's have him go under and and see what happens. In addition, he's a skeptical guy who's very well grounded. Um, so he goes in. And Lonnie didn't necessarily walk him through an abduction scenario. Instead, Lonnie said, essentially, I want your spirit guides to come forward and guide you into the deep recesses of your mind to see what what your mind thinks about this case. And the results were interesting. He did the same thing with me, and I saw a picture of a man, um, which was interesting. And I'm sure it's a picture that I've seen before. And so I went back and sort of found what that picture was. But it's it's like, if that comes into play later, cool. If not, I'm unsure. Carl's session kind of ended up being the winner because it had some things happen <laughs> afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating experiment. We'll, we'll get you, Brendan, we should just get you under two. We should just have a full... That's a what full, I was going to say, dude. I was going to say, if you guys do a season three and you need someone, you know, <laughs> to if, be Tyler, if Tyler, you know, has already gone and he, you know, you guys want to use somebody else, I'm, I'm down. You don't even have to tell me. I'll just show up and be like, okay. Tyler's going to be fighting the Darrow down there, man. Yeah. Oh my and, gosh. Uh, he would be the total guinea pig and I'm going to sit back and say One of the weird no. things that, that meant something to me, and that's the, the thing, like, I don't want to, like, take this as, as, like, you know, some ego thing, but... There was a lot of different things that meant something to me watching this, this, mm-hmm. this series like that, that I, you know, through research and just experiences I've had. And it's something I want to touch on a little bit here, too, in a, in a, in a second. But he said something during his hypnosis. And I sometimes co-host on another podcast and we do like, you know, comedic stories about stuff. It's a spinoff of the one I was telling you about before. It's called the Unbelievers podcast. And okay. we had ju- we had just recorded an episode about the Mantis Man. Oh, I forgot about this that. phenomenon oh, that, man. That, pe- that people see in New Jersey. And he says and we you know, I don't know if you know who David Huggins is. He's the guy who had sex with aliens like he had sex with this this alien that that wore a wig or whatever, had all these experiences his whole life. But uh-huh. every time he would he would have sex with this alien, there was a mantis in the corner watching them. So we like, <laughs> are you we kidding found, me? Yeah. But they called it. The, they called Look it up the David Huggins talk. when you're, right. yeah. When you finish this, it's it, from but, New Jersey. But like, you know, we had just done this episode about this other creature that had been seen in the, uh, the swamp areas of New Jersey. It was called the mantis man. And it was like the main thing about mantises that they say, like there's all these women, you know, who are these, uh, 
mediums that can communicate with with aliens and we did it we did the audio of this one she's talking about how she communicated with this mantis and one of the things she says is that the mantis aliens they use their psychic abilities one of their things is their the, the psychic connection with the human brain so i found that very fascinating that you know as soon as i heard that i was like oh my god we just talked about the mantis man and he's seeing a mantis it was like weird and then the psychic connection there is that's nuts. wild man I don't know. I don't know what Greg's in, and Carl are into in their research, but I, for one, did not know that. That's cool. Yeah. Oh yeah, Carl said the word mantis, and he looks at me and he's like, "You've got to be freaking kidding me!" Literally, <laughs> we were just having this conversation. Mantis it's man, it's so crazy. The mantis man. But that, but that's what I think. It's weird. He's under this, you know, this hypnosis, and that's mm. one of the things they say about the mantis aliens. They use, they like, that's how they communicate through psychic like a psychic connection it's nuts Hmm. well shoot maybe there's something to that i just thought it was funny (laughs) i I thought it was funny too yeah it's yeah yeah i seen you kind of turn around and look at the camera when you said it and i was like mantis man it's mantis (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome that's cool after carl had this uh connection with you know mantis man or, or whatever he was connecting with afterwards did he ever say that he had any type of um, residual thoughts or feelings after that? Or was it more like once he was awake, he could shake it off and it was over? He pretty well shook it off. Carl and I, I think, are in agreement that, and I'm sure there's like hypnotists listening who are like, no, you've got it all wrong. But but I think that in my experience, there's kind of like two kinds of hypnosis. I think there's like the pretty pretty well conscious side that you can just sort of like zap out of fairly easily. And then there's also like going fully under into like a dreaming state of a trance. What I experienced, and I think what Carl experienced too, was more of like a daydream where you were sort of like walking yourself through this daydream while you're feeling extremely relaxed. So no, he he woke up pretty pretty well, pretty easily after it. The emails that you guys got from Amy... Mm-hmm. Led you to another town in Kentucky called Somerset. Yeah. Which is further to the west. You're almost on the Kentucky Tennessee border, I believe, down around like Lake Cumberland. So you guys get to Somerset and other things start happening. So, number one, was Somerset like Hellier? Did you guys go in there and start finding people who had these, uh, crazy experiences what was it like in somerset well we did we we did have a lot of people we went in there uh sort of kind of just bashed the doors open and we're like yep let's go talk to the people at this place and let's go to this bar and talk to this guy and let's talk to the person who does this and just sort of ask uh what's going on and that's i hope if if anybody if any paranormal investigators get there i i hope that it shows some some you know that that's a really fun side of it you know to go around and ask around and so we yeah we were we realized pretty quickly that there's a lot of strange reports um more than you would expect in a small town like that um but then we thought that it was a really nice place i mean it seemed like a really like a, a just a fine place to live you know we weren't really too sketched out uh, then we went out to the outskirts of Somerset where Amy said she lived and yeah, 
a little bit more of that potentially uh, kind of marginalized uh, stranger area. However, that said, also like Hellier, there was also some really nice houses out on the outskirts of Somerset. So her personal vantage point of the town of Somerset, I think, is very different from somebody who lives in, you know, 30 miles away in that area. So you guys go out there and one of the um, the really interesting interviews that you did was with a guy, I think his name was Nate. Yeah. And Nate talks about these time warp like sessions Mm -hmm. that he and his wife have experienced. What was your impression of what he had to say? Nate was cool because he was, it's important when you're doing this to believe that your witnesses are credible. And Nate had a lot of credibility behind him. He's a prominent guy in the town. He is making a podcast about like a year in the life of this area kind of a thing. Like he knows this area. He's articulate. He knows what he's talking about. And basically he started having upon moving to the area, a lot of strange things happen. Um, His stuff tied in more with his idea was that it was related to the geomagnetic activity that is occurring beneath Somerset, Kentucky. um, And in that whole plateau. So I don't, Nate was Nate was a character. He had a whole bunch of stories and even more that we had to cut because uh, we couldn't just have this guy talking for an hour on camera, you know. So so we, but but he kind of opened our eyes and we're like, okay, there maybe we stumbled upon an active window area. Maybe there's a flap here. I'm not sure, but uh, one of the scarier things that Nate started to say was he said, oh yeah, there's there's conspiracies about people in robes doing weird things in caves. And that's what Amy had said as well. And I was ready to dismiss Amy, honestly, in a weird way. I kind of wanted to as rude as that sounds, you know, I was like, I don't, I don't want to get into this roped people in cave stuff. But then Nate (laughs) who knows the town well was like, Oh yeah. Yep. There's reports of that a lot. (laughs) So weird place. Well, the curator at the museum also said something like he didn't really want to talk about that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. that was, was kind of Yeah. So in Nate talking about the experiences or the rumors that he had heard of ritualism and people in robes in the woods, in the caves, was there any almost inclination of like, because what prop- popped into my mind was, like the Illuminati and the Freemasons who were very active in that area, mm-hmm. maybe ties to that. It's possible. I mean, he, I think that people are afraid of things that they don't understand or know what's going on. And I think that people dressing in robes is naturally something that'll freak people out. But then again, uh, it's also, it's possible that they these people or beings or whatever they are, because according to Tyler's research, it's possible that they, the people in robes are supernatural beings, right? So that adds a whole other can of worms. But I mean, it's also totally possible that we could, we could have walked into that cave in Somerset and these guys would have been like, Hey, we're just having our robe appreciation meeting. Like, and they're just (laughs) fine, you know? And so we don't, we don't really know. It's the Fellowship of the Ring on dealing through the minds of Moria, right? They're just sitting Perhaps. there uh, 
what what do you call it when people like play sword fights and stuff like that? LARPing. They're LARPing. Yeah, they yeah. were Who LARPing knows? in the caves of Somerset. Of course, now though, if I compare them to that, and they're not—I don't know—I don't want people to go after me. I'm just saying, <laughs> I don't know what was what these people were were into, and we never we never saw people in robes and caves there. But then again, uh, we we don't live in that community like like Amy did. But you guys went to the cave, and yeah. you did something that was. Um, to me, very brave, very on the outskirts of, um, let's say, you know, the normal thinking, basically putting yourself out there in a situation that maybe you weren't comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Dana kind of decides that it may be necessary to do this initiation, basically. So what were your thoughts on that? What was the purpose behind this initiation in the cave there you know it's funny i uh i've I've gotten a few questions about this and it and it is so i'm i'm a practicing catholic like that's that's my faith background that's what i believe and that's what i'm sort of where i'm coming at in in a lot of ways so naturally it's kind of like we're gonna go in a cave and do what you know um but she was so like welcoming about it and, and basically the thought behind it was, okay, we have this case around us. All of these synchronicities keep saying that we're going on a path in some direction to find out something about potentially even about the nature of paranormal phenomena. And so my thought was, well, if that's – if you think that there's some sort of a trickster energy around it, which I, I don't think anybody can deny at this point that there's there's something there's some sort of energy surrounding this case. Um, let's see in classical Greg and Dana fashion, they're like, well let's let's just see head on what happens if you try and talk to that sort of energy. Um, so that's what they that's what the plan was going into the caves. My plan was to sit back and and document it and and see what happens. And this brings up another, I guess, point of something that I think is very prevalent in this area. You go in with the, um, you're going to talk to or try to contact this spirit called Pan. Mm -hmm. And Pan is what I basically, for lack of a better word, would consider almost like an elemental not, not type. Not Peter Pan. No, would be like an <laughs> elemental type being, which in this area, um, there's a lot of credence behind that because of the connection to the Native American heritage that is in this area. And so it is a very, I mean, you know, Brendan, you're of the Catholic faith. I was born into a very Baptist faith living here. But I think there was also a very beautiful, like you said, you're kind of standing back observing this almost on a scientific basis, but it's also this kind of very beautiful connecting with nature type thing that you're trying to do in there. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That it's, it's so much of this, like you were talking about revolves around natural areas. So like to sit back and kind of like take a moment to meditate on that space is is a pretty cool thing, no matter what you're into. Do you think that there was any connection with any type of elemental being there? 
or that that could be some of the basis behind what people are experiencing in these areas? That's an ongoing theory. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I don't know that I can necessarily answer at this point. I think that it's just, and, and also to keep in mind, so we're recording this in, in early December of 2019, that experiment was done in late September of 2019. I mean, that was just a couple of months ago. And so it's an ongoing idea of like calling that sort of energy around the case forward. Um, I'm curious to see what what might happen ar- around it in in the months to come. I've been ghost hunting a long time and y- you have too and you experience that level of, you know, you can tell when you walk into a place, you can feel it. You just get to that point where it's like you know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's an energy. You can feel that presence. When you're in this cave and you're, you know, more or less trying to communicate with something that's elemental did you feel a different type of energy when you were there yeah i did and i felt and i felt my friends uh who i know so well sort of change it's sort of like their energy sort of shifted as well where it it sort of changed into this like yes let's try and talk to something and i think that a lot of the frustration and a lot of the frustration that greg and dana have had because this case is is very personal to them um, was sort of given an outlet in that cave. So that was, yeah, that was a different side of them that I hadn't necessarily seen in person before. It was, it was very interesting. And, and Greg and, and yeah, we, we felt it, 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 it was a weird place. It was just a weird place to be in to begin with though. So it's also like, of course the, the other half of my brain is like, well, how often are you spending 10 hours in a cave, you know? <laughs> and yeah. so I'm like, well, of course I felt strange. But, well, uh, yeah. I say that because, you know, I had, we had finished the third episode of season two and I just, you know, sent them an email and I just said, listen, like you talk about Route 52 and, you know, where you guys are in Ashland and just the weird connections that everything has. And I say this whole thing and, and I don't want to bring myself into it, but it's just an experience that I had. Mm-hmm. And as I said, you you experience the whole ghost hunting side of it. You can that energy shift. But we stayed one weekend in this cabin further down Route 52 in a state forest called Cowboy Lingo. And we stayed in this uh, cabin that was supposedly haunted. But we were investigating it. And uh, a couple of the girls, Annie was one of the girls that were there. And they had done like this energy work, like, you know, uh, the whole kind of meditating and trying to communicate what was ever there and i was the guinea pig of course who went in there by myself while they were outside and were you know i'm on the monitor they're watching me from the back of the suv and i'm in there trying to communicate what's ever there and it was this energy that i had never ever felt before something very strange and i attributed it to something maybe elemental or something that had to do with native american spirits but i had you know of all the places i've been of all the things i experienced this was so weird and so different it's like the feeling of being watched times 50 you know it's very it's nuts yeah and and what was even weird is at the end of it we did that whole thing where we were kind of giving back where we spread tobacco and like sage out just to say hey we're here in peace we're not you know we're just here to communicate and and protect this land we want to help protect this land and I woke up at like three, four in the morning. We were all sound asleep, and I hear like somebody like chanting and drumming. 
mm. like banging on a drum and I'm like, what the hell is that? So I wake up Annie and I'm like, do you hear that? And Annie actually heard the same thing. It was like somebody was right outside the back door, like kind of chanting and, and banging on a drum. It was the weirdest thing ever, but I'd never felt anything like that before or since. It's cool. That's cool. And it's, it's like, and that makes every other investigation interesting too, doesn't it? So it's like, a, a graph is only a graph if it also has outliers. So yeah. not having an experience is also something worth mapping down. Like I think people go in with this like thrill-seeking fashion, which is like cool, like me too, to go in there and, and, and look for this stuff. And when nothing happens, write it down, you know, and, and then continue on. When When you feel something like that, yeah, you make note of it. So when you feel something like that, it makes it even more prevalent. I know what you mean. And it's interesting when you say being, you get this feeling of being watched times 10. I think the only places that I've ever investigated that I've actually felt that way were places that had ties back to Native American areas. So like Mm -hmm. Cabway Lingo, uh, Lake Shawnee Amusement Park that's south of us in West Virginia. Those areas, that feeling is very prevalent. It's almost like you're not really supposed to be there. Like whatever is watching you is being protective. But once you're there and you show your true intent, if you're there with, you know, an open mind and a positive mind, it almost becomes accepting of your energy in its area. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And and there's, I don't know. It's, I'm not a, I don't have any claimed, you know, researcher or scholarliness in Native American culture. But I've also, is it also true, this is like a genuine question to you guys, is it also true that like um, a lot of Native American, like they weren't necessarily in Kentucky, like they were they were in areas around it, but they weren't always like straight up in Kentucky. And so the theory, of course, that some people had was like, well, maybe they picked up on something strange that was there. But uh, I don't know if that's true or not. So I think it's, They're both interesting. Most of the Native American culture in this area went back to the Shawnee tribes and the Adena tribes, and most of them followed the river. Mm. So there are so many locations, even on, okay, so Ashland, Huntington, Point Pleasant, Gallipolis. um, There are lots of areas, if you just follow the river up through there, that you come across these burial mounds that still exist yeah okay so again following the natural resource barriers basically yeah which is naturally probably yeah i guess that would probably be too expected you know and it's and ah i don't know we sort of almost make i I don't i i kind of poke out the trope in in season two as well where i'm like well a lot of people claim native american burial grounds etc etc but uh i think that People who are in tune with with natural, yeah, feelings and stuff. That's interesting. When you guys are in the cave, you've done this ritual over the course of, I don't know what it'd take, an hour, two hours, five mm-hmm. hours. Yeah, it was, it was a few hours, yeah. So you're there, and towards the end of it, it almost seems like there's this level of frustration when you're not getting a response. Yeah. And so Tyler says and does something that I think is very interesting. And he kind of turns the whole thing on its head and says, the reason we're not experiencing anything is because of the energy that we're putting out. We're expecting something 
to be giving back to us when maybe we should be giving to it instead. And I thought that was very interesting and very powerful, not just from that specific investigation or experiment, but just in paranormal in general. Yeah. It's nice. It's a nice, it's a good thought. And I think he's onto something there. So yeah, of course we're frustrated. Um, we were, I guess you could say, expecting something a little bit more to happen, given the culmination of like, maybe this is a pet. Maybe it's a, I don't necessarily think it's a, it's a dead end, but it's sort of like, we're going to keep looking and we're going to keep trying things. Um, what's funny is I, that's a theory when I think about it now that you, when you put it in that framework that I think I've, I think that, and I'm sure you guys too have, have been noticing for a long time. When I worked, when I worked at the Stanley hotel and I was 18 years old and I was giving people ghost tours and going into these buildings for three or four hours with people talking to them about ghosts, I could tell pretty early on if there's this dude, usually it's this guy in his like mid fifties with his arms crossed, who's like been brought there by his wife against his will, you know? And he's like, <laughs> he's just like not into it. Uh, it's like, well, that guy's going to throw off the energy for everybody. And so it's like, right. the, you've got to, you've got to put it out there in order to get energy back. And Carl kind of wraps that up too later in the season and he talks about the effect of the initiation on the larger audience. Mm -hmm. And he says something to the effect of, you know, if we didn't experience anything in there, maybe it wasn't meant for us to experience. Maybe it was meant for the viewers to experience. <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe somebody out there, it was supposed to you know, connect with them. Have you guys gotten any responses like that? Anybody emailing saying, oh my God, I watched it and I had these crazy experiences and now I can't stop thinking about it. We've gotten people, absolutely. The, the, the thing is, is um, especially, you know, with, with Greg's inbox and all of the messages and stuff that are being sent to him and Dana, that, and I'm getting some as well, and Carl and Tyler, people were affected by this case. I think that people who are naturally kind of jittery maybe jump the gun a little bit, you know? So we sort of, we always take a step back where it's like, well, let's right. see what, what really is happening over time. But uh, that's, I think that that maybe kind of freaks some people out, but honestly, I'm really interested to see what happens because we're not, we're not claiming this like, well, it's haunted case closed. It's it's like we are putting this out to everybody. And so that's why we're like it's wonderful to sit and talk about this. Um, because we're we're giving the toolbox out to the field. And we hope that people share their results with us, but it's like go out, let's go see what happens. You watch a lot of these shows, you watch a lot of the stuff that goes on in the paranormal field, and I can say this is one of the best assembled teams. Everyone just kind of came together just on a whim, like, hey, let's go out and see if we can film this thing. And then you guys just it just became this thing. I mean, it's yeah. it's incredible. And well, thank you. I cannot I mean, and, and honestly, this is honestly from the bottom of my heart. This is one of the best documentary series that's been out there. I mean, it's so interesting <laughs> and it's just the the research. You can tell the research is like to the T. You guys like do the work. 
You know what I mean? And yeah, it's not yeah. just like I said before, it's not just sitting in a room with night vision cameras all the all night. It's actually those to the grindstone work. And I mean, hats off to you guys because it's incredible. I mean, well, I, my, my, my mind is blown and still blown. <laughs> it means a lot. It really does. I, I think it's it's spoken to people who it was meant to speak to. And I think that the people who are into this field, not just casually, but who are like into this field, I think it speaks to them. And I and I love that. And I'm really, yeah, I'm, I'm proud. So, so thank you a lot. Appreciate that. I've always been obsessed with Barry Allen and the Flash and the whole <laughs> fact that he can like travel in between different Earths and dimensions. I mean, and that's what I've always thought this stuff is. And I tell people all the time, whether you just strictly are into the ghost hunting or you're strictly into the the Bigfoot stuff. And Greg even says that nobody really ever talks to each other in those two different parallels. But I honestly think everything's connected. Everything yeah. is connected in some way. So, yeah, I hope that Hellier helps break down some barriers. And, and it's like, yeah, like the crypto people don't talk to the alien people, don't talk to the ghost people. And that's why part of like the jargon, like I said, that we're starting, we're just starting to call it the phenomena well, and give it a big, give big, big blanket term. Yeah. You talk right. about the bridges, you know, the bridges can, you're, you know, putting that bridge between those two gaps. There you go. Yeah. There's, a, right. there's another bridge. <laughs> I like it. Towards the very end of season two, you kind of blow everybody's minds with this numerology yeah. that occurs. And the one thing that I kept thinking over and over again, you know, is that numbers are the universal language. Mm -hmm. So no matter where you are, what language you're speaking, this is a way that we can all communicate. And you and Tenny you know, sit there in this hotel room and start drawing this stuff out. And you're like, holy cow, this all makes sense. The number 93 mm -hmm. keeps coming back. And so in a very short summation of how you, how did you come to those terms? With oh, the man. Numerology? Yeah. The numbers is something, you know what? This is the first question I've, I've been asked or answered about the numbers since this has come out. So the numbers is a continuing source of really deep intrigue. Um, essentially what happens is, and I'm sure anybody who is listening to this has paused the podcast and gone to listen or watch the show now. So I can just, we'll just talk about whatever. Let's but just talk the, about it. <laughs> the, the number, uh, Terry Wrist sent Greg a series. He sent him a JPEG image file along with, a coded email. Uh, and then Terry just kind of disappeared off of the digital earth as well. Um, maybe he's coming back in at some point. I don't know. Uh, I had looked at this email and literally have it. It's sitting, you know, five feet in front of my face right now. I've got it pasted right up above my computer. And I just sat there for a year and a half while I was doing all this other reading and editing and, work on this on this case and it would just it just bothered me so much that that was a portion of Terry's email that had not been decoded and so Greg in his understandably paranoid state was not ready in season one to throw the numbers out into the wild um, because we hadn't we, he thought maybe they were coordinates and we hadn't gone to the coordinate spot yet, you know, and he didn't want some 
you know, <laughs> Destination America show or something to go out and like have this whole thing happen. <laughs> right. And so it's like, well, shoot, let's let's see what's going on. And so we sit back and we're like, well, use the numbers. Tyler, we believed because there were 16 digits that they were coordinate points. Uh, that said, if they are coordinate points, they're incredibly specific coordinate points because that would mean they're, in theory, eight and eight, which is like getting down into like the square footage area of a, of a coordinate point. And so Tyler went out to that place, did not necessarily see anything except got a nod that we might he might be in the right direction um and so i with this in mind just sat and stared at these and thought these aren't coordinates there's there's something to it and i thought so many different things that these numbers could be i was maybe they were maybe their passport numbers maybe their uh ups tracking numbers maybe it's a credit card number or something related to the cipher somehow and then one time, one night, I'm sitting there staring at them and my girlfriend, Chelsea, walks up and does the simplest, uh, most beautiful thing in the world with these numbers and she just added them up together. <laughs> and for some reason, that mm -hmm. is not something that we had done before. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And she was like, well, and then, I, and, then it was, and then her and I sat there and we were like, well, what if you, what if you, do, the, what if you do half the number? Oh, that's weird. It's the same number. What if you do a quarter of the number? What if you do the number this way? What if you put it in? What if you do the square roots? What if you do the, and and we were just flabbergasted that this mathematical number was showing up over and over again. I didn't know what that number meant. I am not and I think this is pretty clear in the show. I am not interested in occult texts and Crowley stuff and all of that. I, so I did not know that 93 was a pertinent number to, to this, this train of thought. And I uh, called up John Tenney and basically told him what we found. And I also said the same thing to Alan Greenfield. And he's like, well, 93 is very relevant to people who are interested in this sort of deep esoterica Crowley type stuff. And I thought that that was interesting, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And then Tenny said, all right, well, let's look at some of the texts that we know that Terry was interested in. And this is after, you know, I probably had four or five phone calls with Tenny where we just sat here and just brainstormed on these numbers. And then it, it, it just dawned one day, Tenny's like, well, let's look at, let's look at the third chapter and then, and the ninth and the ninth sentence in the book that we know that Terry was using the book of the law. And sure enough, boom, that's when the revelation hit. It's uh, it's a reference to <laughs> another one of Terry's writings and Terry's writings are basically instructions on how to, the chapter is literally called How to Defeat the Euphanot Body Snatchers. <laughs> and uh, we're sitting there just, and I'm just kind of dumbfounded. And I'm, oh, it's such a weird place to be in because I'm, we're, we're documenting in real time like this case. And so Chelsea is sitting here with me with her iPhone filming me having this conversation with Tenny. Uh, and then we would just kind of leave our phones on record in case something crazy happened. And <laughs> we have deleted dozens and dozens of hours of just rambles. And so it's like, well, 
well, we don't want to, who knows if there's a golden moment or something, but then it just, and I was like, I don't, I don't think I can tell Greg yet. I don't, th- I don't know if I want to tell them yet. And so we luckily were just about to get together two weeks after that. And so we just straight up waited. I waited until everybody was all together. And I said, guys, and they, they didn't know that that was coming. They didn't know that I would become so obsessed with, with these numbers, almost frankly, almost to an almost slightly unhealthy point <laughs> where I was like, it was <laughs> bugging me so much. But uh, it felt really good to, I guess, get that off my chest. Yeah. You became a real mathematician with this. And <laughs> when we were watching it, Brendan and I looked at each other and we were like, oh, my God, all the whole time. It's literally sitting there in plain sight, staring you in the face in the simplest of forms. But sometimes that's the most difficult to see. But it all makes sense with, you know, numbers being the universal language. This is how they are going to decode things for us. It's it's amazing. It's mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for for. I'm worried that some people watch it and they're just like, what are you talking about? But I'm like, no, there's really something to this. So I appreciate your perspective. No, because Um, then I sat there and I started adding up all the numbers in my brain as well. I'm like, I'm doing my numerology for my birthday and all this other crazy stuff, which (laughs) I, you know, your mind starts going off on these tangents. Like, oh my Mm -hmm. God, I wonder what this number means. But there's, there's validity behind all of it. And it's fascinating. It tells us a lot about Terry. I mean, it, it really right. does. It's like well, we go, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah. Well, the crazy thing is that you said it brings you to a chapter where it says how to take down body snatchers. And that's like all the, the, the stuff like that's what people have been sending emails about. Like, you know, like that yeah. Amy chick, that's what she talked about, that kind of stuff. And it's like, that's nuts. Right. Nuts. Oh, I know. Terry, uh, Terry, if, assuming who knows maybe terry's listening to this and 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 he's he's a badass i mean there's no hiding that like everything that we've heard about this guy is like he's way out there on the periphery and getting into this weird stuff and it's so it sort of gives us a glimpse into his mind where in 2012 2013 february 2013 he sent greg these emails and uh maybe he had realize this who knows when that this number is just the right number to to perfectly mathematically in so many different forms equal out to that relevant that relevant number of 93 it's bizarre it's weird what's that movie that matt damon's in where he's like really smart he's like the janitor and he's like super super smart he's solving all the <laughs> goodwill hunting <laughs> <laughs> you had a real goodwill hunting moment oh with thanks that, connor you did right. so in your opinion, now that you've, you know, this has been going on for several years, mm-hmm. who do you think Terry Wrist is? What do you think he did with his life? What was his career? What kind of person is he? I think that Terry is putting together everything that we know about this man. I think that Terry is... Uh, incredibly intelligent had some really dark experiences in the vietnam war uh which led him into a certain mental state and a train of thought and this is all just hypothesizing based off of what we've what we've kind of learned from other people that led him into this path of being interested in 
the very fringe of paranormal research and, and esoterica. And so he, I think he fell into this obsession with it. And then I think that he is, according to both uh, both people we talked about who had met him, or especially Greenfield who had knew him, he would be in his mid-70s now. And so he has, as he told David Christie, retired from pursuits of this kind. And so he's instead just kind of reaching out and touching little, you know, people who are who are out researching stuff like this and and maybe just giving them nods in a certain direction. Of course, what's frustrating about it is that we really want to talk to him. <laughs> I mean, right. I really want to know who this guy is. And there's only so much that you can do on Google, especially when you don't know if this is a fake name or not. So I am very curious to see if he watches this or or to to see what what else could happen. It's it's kind of intimidating but also really interesting that this guy might be might actually be out there. Is it possible do you think that maybe Terry Wrist actually could be injury cold or one of these other mm. ultra terrestrials hiding? I always like that thought. I think it's totally possible. How weird is that? So like one of the bigger questions that we're asking with Hellier that we have to ask ourselves and like you guys have to ask yourselves is, is it possible for a supernatural entity to send an email? Like, right. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, their technology is most likely far superior to ours. Mm-hmm. Who even knows how, you know, how this comes about? It's, it, it is fascinating to think yeah. about who that could possibly be. I completely believe like your theory that he, you know, if he is human, that he has some type of governmental experience, uh, you know, experience that has led him to the knowledge that he has now. Right. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing where it's like almost sort of like a tongue in cheek, like, Oh man, Terry's pretty scary, but it's also like, no, we're, we're straight up very interested in talking to this individual. And the, and the other thing is, uh, which I was really happy about, and I don't think I'm giving away any major spoilers or anything with this. You hear, if you watch episode seven of season two, um, you'll, did you, did you hear Greenfield say you, you better talk to me off camera about a word or something that you could use it. He, he gave us a word. Like he, he gave us something that Terry would know. And so we, I love that. Like I'm so like the skeptical side of me is so happy that like Greg has this this sort of like direct like well what what is this? You know, to find out if it's the real person or not. Because people this show, I mean, is like being watched by by a fair number of people and there are people without the best intentions who want to who want to trick Greg, right. who want to trick the and so it's like there has to be a, a check and balance somehow. So I'm glad that we have right. some sort of that. Yeah. So I guess in summary of all of this, you guys have spent what the majority of two years now doing, you know, filming, going to these places. How has Hellier and all of the experiences that you have had changed your life? basically changed yeah. your outlook on the world it's it's made <laughs> it has 
blown the door wide open on a lot of possibilities and 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 i think instilled a huge sense of wonder and i think that that's a beautiful thing um you know i honestly thought that i was probably going to like go to i i don't know maybe go to law school maybe keep working at my other job and and i was like well it's it's weird that i'm not doing the stanley anymore but i don't really want to be the next Zach Baggins or something, you know. So I'm like, well, I'll, I'm I'm going to continue being interested in it, but I don't know if that's something that I can do. So like, we're really hoping that we're able to just keep documenting strangeness and work on the Hellier case and and continue this, and and just sort of, yeah, live out what we're passionate about. And so I I, yeah, I think it's wonderful that Hellier has brought so many people together, really surrounding this modern day high strangeness case and i'm i'm honored to be a part of it and uh really really happy that anybody who's listening to this is is also into it as well and i and i hope that they know that that we're very easy to get a hold of like we're not there's not some big paywall or some like producer or agency you have to contact like just just hit us up we'll 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 talk to everybody you know so so i love that it's an open source case and I think that the only way that it could happen is if we, is if we did it ourselves and 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 made the documentation ourselves. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And I'm yeah, thanks. I'm, I I appreciate that. So it's all good. So the most important question is: Will there be Hellier three? <laughs> I I will not uh, make that technical announcement. I I think that we are. I think there's going to have to be some time. And I think that we're going to have to see what happens with the case. Um, but given the fact that so many people are sort of becoming a part of the task force as well, I think that it's very likely that we could head into the region where a season three starts to become quite possible. Yeah. I love that it's open-ended and a mystery and that it's not all wrapped up with a perfect little bow, that it mm-hmm. does make people think it makes people stop and reevaluate everything that they could have thought before, you know, coming into this as just ghost hunters, paranormal investigators. When you start to see the other side of things, yeah, it blows your mind. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly did mine. I mean, that's for sure. And, and yeah, I hope people join us for the ride. So Ah, hit us up. We'll, we're all here. I'm I'm at Connor J Randall, and you can find Greg and Dana and Carl and Tyler, and we're all we're all right here. Um, it's it's open source, and I think that's a beautiful thing. Connor, any other final thoughts that you would like to relay to our listeners before we wrap up? I I would just like to to say that. Uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate anybody in their interest in this case, and I hope that they really sort of realize that the world is a strange and beautiful and wonderful place. And uh, we're here, um, I guess, in terms if I'm on a little pulpit, my big thing is I love animal adoption, so adopt your pets. Um, hey, <laughs> yes, I, adopt, don't shop. Thank you. So I'll say that for sure. And then just, uh, I guess, just close with... Uh, you know, come on and, and join the task force. There's there's a lot of room. So we, we appreciate I appreciate you guys having me. Thank you so much. Before oh, we, we 100% thank you for coming on. I yeah, mean, it's no. been an absolute pleasure. 
I could talk for hours, dude. Like seriously. <laughs> well, you can hit stop recording if you want. We'll keep talking if you want. I don't mind. It's uh, there's some weird stuff out there, and there's, gosh, it's so hard to distill it all. But I've got a notebook full of stuff, and we'll compare it with your guys's notebook sometime. So yeah, that was intense, awesome, and everything I hoped it would be. Um, super stoked. Big thank you to Connor Randall for coming on Serial Spirits, the podcast. You heard him give all his info of where you can find him, how to reach him. And make sure that if you watch Hellier Seasons 1 and 2, you go to Amazon and you give them a five-star review and let them know how much you really loved it, just like we did. Um, So, yeah. uh, Glad we got to do this interview. Glad we got to talk to him and look forward to maybe seeing him in the future or talking to him again. Annie? (laughs) Sorry. Got anything to say? Hold on. I was thinking. You're super quiet over there. I had a thought there. No, I just want to say a huge thanks and congratulations to the entire Hellier cast and crew, Greg and Dana Newkirk, Connor Randall, Tyler Strand, Carl Pfeiffer, for bringing something original to the paranormal field. 100% original. that we have never seen before and something that I think is really needed in the world of paranormal investigation right now, because you see so much investigating going into this, you know, this intense boots on the ground, really doing your homework type stuff. And I I just think it's imperative that if we are to grow in the paranormal field, that this is the stuff that we continue to see. And that's what I love the most about this Hellier thing is that you can see it's not just a production where they're, you know, oh, it's acting like you can tell that they're really nose to the grind on this. I mean, they are serious. You see it in Greg's face. You see it in uh, Carl's face when they're doing these experiments. You see it in all their faces. Like, And Tyler Strand, man, I want to investigate with that dude. He's intense. He's awesome. The stuff that he says, jumping right in there, like he is exactly how I am with it. Like, let's go get it done. You know what I mean? So yeah, exactly what Annie said. I want to... uh, Just tell everybody, this is incredible. This is what the paranormal field is. It's not just sitting in a dark room or sitting in a cave with your your, uh, night vision cameras hoping something to happen. It's boots on the ground. It's doing research behind it. And there was a lot of research put into this. I mean, you can tell. And that was the most interesting thing to me was how much research they did and the just the mind-boggling stuff that they discovered when getting this research this research completed like i am over the moon and this is what the paranormal field needed it's something original something incredible and congratulations hats off to these guys for bringing this and taking us on this adventure with them you got any final thoughts you'd like to add here annie no we've got one more episode left this year it's going to be our special christmas episode the one that we love doing so much every year so you guys stay tuned for that after that we're going to take our hiatus We're just a few weeks away from baby time. So thanks for everybody uh, who has listened this year, who stuck with us. You guys stay tuned. We've got so much more in 2020, um, and we're very grateful for each of you. One more episode, 100% one more episode. Thank you guys for listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. We will see you next week. Epstein didn't kill himself. Once again, thank you for listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Check us out weekly on Paranormal Warehouse at ParanormalWarehouse.com, on iTunes at Serial Spirits, and on SoundCloud. Please rate and review the show. Follow us on all your social media apps. 
Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Serial Spirits, on Twitter at Serial Spirits, and on Instagram. Until next time, be aware and be Traveling safe. through this world below, I got no toll, no signal danger in that fair Let's go.